So last week when we left off, we were, Peter was telling us um, about the salvation that we have in God, the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus, uh, who is our gift from God. It's the gift of grace to us. And we left off, um, we had finished verse 7 where he had been talking about um, our faith that was greater worth than gold, um, that our faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. And so Peter was telling us that faith is just not a concept or something that you get, but it's, it's a reality in your life. It, it really becomes the uh, part of who you are, your faith in God and your uh, your hopeful expectation of the return of Christ Jesus. And it really, the whole concept of your salvation, uh, whether it be starting at the cross um, and moving through your life, and then the salvation that is to appear to us one day in Christ Jesus, uh, that really for the believer becomes the essence of their life. It is the concept of what, of what they are living for. And then he goes on here in verse 8 and he says, Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus... You what? You love him. You love him. Now, it's interesting that Peter's throwing this out because when we think about the apostle of love, which one do we think of? Who do we think of? We think of John. But who else writes uh, a considerable passage of scripture for us dealing with love? Paul, where at? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so here he's telling us that we don't see Jesus, but there's a love that we have for him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, how can we truly love something that we don't really have? Well, let's look over at 1 John. As you guys know, 1 John is the apostle of love. Over in uh, chapter 4, there's several, uh, and into chapter 5, there's several amazing passages here that deal with love and primarily God's love. And so we have hit these uh, numerous times in the past, but it's important um, to keep running over them time and time again. And the more we run over them, linking to other passages of Scripture, it builds a, uh, an understanding, it deepens our understanding of, of how God is working in our lives. Now, over in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John gives us a definition. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves us. God showed his love in the fact that he sent his son to die for our sins. Right? John 3, 16, we're familiar with. God so what? Loves the world that he gave. So now we're starting to see that the concept of love, as you guys know, it starts where? Yeah, it starts with God. True love starts with God. Um, love is, uh, for the world, love is an emotion, but that's not what love is for the Christian person. Let's continue on here and see what we have to see. Verse 11, he says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one who has ever seen God or no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God, what's that word lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The love that you have, not worldly love, but the spiritual kind of love, where do you get that from? You get it from God. Now, this is what I find pretty amazing about all this, is what this is saying is, when God lives in us, what's present in us now? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is 
love. It manifests itself in the joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But when there's love in the believer's life, it's not talking about... Let me tell you how I have it uh, written here. Well, let's keep, on, let's, let's keep on going here for just a second. Verse 16 says this, And so we know and we rely on God's... That, uh, sorry, verse 16. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are what? Like him, meaning who? Jesus, God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Verse 19 really sums us all up. We love because what? He first loves us. Now, when Peter's telling us, don't leave First John yet, but when Peter is talking this concept of love, he's saying, you haven't seen him, but you love him. How in the world can this be? I mean, how can we, how can we having not a, a tangible uh, substance to grab onto or a figure, how in the world can there be love there? Well, John is telling us that the root of love is God. And when God is in a person, love is now dwelling inside that person. Apart from God dwelling in the person, there can be no what? There can be no love. Now, uh, chapter 5, verse 2 of 1 John. This is how we know that we love the children of God. And this will play in later in the Bible study. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out what? His commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not what? His commands are not burdensome. Now, Stu, that's the verse right there that you link with your memory verse. I have, let me read, read to you a couple of things I have written here. Love in us is essentially God's spirit responding to God's grace to us. We can't love like God unless God's dwelling in us. So the love that happens in our lives, the love that we have for God, catch this, let me build the picture here. The love that we have for God starts with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And it's the Holy Spirit that is essentially um, responding to the grace that has been given to us. And it's the Holy Spirit in us that has now given us the spirit of what? Love. It's not a love that we have attained on our own. Um, It's not a, uh, let me see if I have it written here. Biblical love is not a change in thinking. And so often we we think this, and and I might have to change the way that we do uh, some of our counseling. We always say that um, love is a what? Love is a choice. But understand, love... Biblical love is not a change in thinking, and that's what we think sometimes. Oh, now I'm saved. Now I need to start being more what? Loving. Now I need to start doing nice things and loving people. But biblical love is not a change in thinking, but it's a change in essence. Love is a change in who you are. Now here's the deal. For somebody who has the Holy Spirit, whoever has been forgiven much what? Loves much. 
So the person who's walking around understanding the state of their sin that they were in, understanding the grace that God has given them, understanding the cost at which it was to purchase us, that person now, because they have been forgiven much, they what? They now love much. Now, for the born-again believer, for us not to start showing signs of love towards our brothers, it simply means this. We are making the choice to not love. Oftentimes we think, well, I need to make the choice to love. But when we are not showing signs of love, that means that we are actually going and choosing something from our old world lifestyle and we desire to have that implemented into the situation rather than let the Holy Spirit lead us um, right in front of us. Essentially what we're doing is this, is we're telling the Holy Spirit to back up and we're taking something out of the trash can and sticking it in front of him and saying, I want you to lead. And we're pushing the Holy Spirit back. I had it also written like this. uh, Christ's love, it's not an emotion, but it's an action. And that's what God's word is telling us all over the place. Love, biblical love is not an emotion. It is action. When God shows his love to us, how does he do it? He does it through action. He keeps pouring out not only grace at the cross, but he continues to pour out grace through our trials and temptations that we go through, right? We've been studying that. We've been learning that. And as his grace is pouring out more and more upon us, that is his love pouring out onto us. And that's why John is saying, as well as Peter is going to remind us, that there is a direct connection of your relationship with the rest of the body of Christ. And if you don't have that love relationship, I'm not talking about friendship relationship. I'm talking about the spiritual kind of love relationship that takes two strangers and because Christ Jesus is the common denominator, they now call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, that that is the biblical kind of love that we're talking about where it transcends genetics and it transcends even uh, human relationships that we develop through the course of life, but that it's established in Christ Jesus. And John, or uh, Peter is telling us this back over in First Peter. He's saying this, you love Jesus and you haven't even seen him. Why? Because it's actually the Holy Spirit in you that is responding to God's grace that he's had upon your life. In Christ, you're a new what? a new creation. The Spirit's now dwelling in you. And so what I come to understand is simply this. When we are responding to God because of his love, we would say that that is worship, right? It's only through the Spirit of God that we can worship God, true, right? No man can call God, 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 except through Christ Jesus. No man can come to the Father but through Christ Jesus, but through the Spirit of God. And so John is telling us this. When you love Jesus, it's because the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. If you don't really love Jesus, it's because the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. Because the Spirit of God, there's one responsibility of the Spirit of God in this world. And it's simply to glorify the Father. That's it. Jesus took all attention, pointed it to the Father. The Spirit, no attention is supposed to go to the Holy Spirit. He, the person of the Holy Spirit, does not want your attention, your praise, and your worship. 
He points all men towards the Father. And now Peter is telling us this. You haven't seen him because you love him. And that is showing the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. And even though you do not see him now, you what? You believe in him. By the way, it's important because if you remember, all of this is in the context of Peter's writing to the church and saying, you're getting ready to go into a difficult time. Big tribulations are coming. Small tribulations are already there, but bigger tribulations are coming. And he's trying to teach them how to stand firm through the trials, through the temptation to walk away from God, through the difficulty, through the persecutions. And now he simply says this. um, He says, you love him. And even though you do not see him. Well, scripture tells us over in Romans 8, 28, that. All things work for the what? All things work for the good. It doesn't say that we see all things working for the good, does it? No. And that's one of the difficulties that we kind of have, that we need to get over in our Christian walk is, we always want to see God's evidential proof that he's working in our lives. God, show me you are working. Give me something that is tangible. Is Jesus tangible? No. He's spirit. And so we have to understand Peter's telling us is that, hey, you're waiting for Jesus. Here he comes. You've not seen him, but you love him. And even though you do not see him, you can believe in him, can't you? Do you know that the first thing that, uh, that has been said right here is he says you love him. And then he goes on to say now you believe in him, which simply means that that is going to be our faith. Remember, we talked last week or last Bible study here in Peter that faith is believing who God is and what he has said. Hope is the anticipation of what he is going to do in your life. And a lot of the times as we start to build this concept where now Peter is rebuilding this concept or building for us this concept of those three things that Paul talks about in Scripture being faith, hope, and what? And love. And now Peter has already talked to us about our love for Jesus, love for the Father. Now he's saying, you believe in him. You have faith in who he is and and the plan and so forth. And then he says, and you are filled because of your belief in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you know that for the person who has been forgiven much, who understands the cost of their salvation of their soul. What is Peter saying? Because Peter is saying, this is what I understand is in your hearts. And what's, what's the descriptive words that he's using there about their joy? It's an expressible and a glorious joy. When they consider whose they are in their salvation, what happens? They break out in worshiping God. Isn't that interesting? Because sometimes what we might have to question ourselves with is, whenever I think about God, is that what happens? I mean, when I'm just, you know, going about my daily life, you know, today, was, was there ever a time that I actually had inexpressible and glorious joy? Do you know why you didn't have that today? Do you know why you didn't have that yesterday or the week before, maybe the month before? The reason why you don't have that is because you're not seriously contemplating your sin and the cross. 
Because when you get to that point of deep contemplation of the reality of your sin and the truth of God's grace and his mercy extended to you and the price that was paid for you at the cross, the result will be the spirit will what? The spirit will begin to worship the father. It's an amazing thing. You know, Paul even tells us in Corinthians that sometimes there's times when we're trying to pray about something, but we just can't get the words to express it. And who does he say kicks in at that point? And the Spirit starts to utter for you. He starts to speak on your behalf before the Father. Man, if we could understand that true worship is the Spirit of God speaking out through us, proclaiming the holiness and the glory of God, that might just help us in our human nature to step back and let the Spirit who now dwells in us begin to worship God, and then we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen? Now, he says, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, he tells us this, you are receiving the goal of your faith. And he's talking about the hope that we have. The hope that, because oftentimes we look at our salvation like this. And I think if we can look at the way that Peter is speaking to us about salvation, it might take us into that next step in our lives of understanding. Because when we think of salvation, we think of, can you grab those? Uh, I have some Altoids that are on the back, um, back in there. And uh, when we think about salvation, we think about when does salvation occur in our lives? Or when, when does salvation occur? Or when did it occur? It's a trick question. When was it accomplished? At the cross. Thank you. I'm going to help our friends here. You okay? Oh, look at you. You're stocked up. You need one? Okay. Well, just in case. No, you're good. No, you're good. I just, I just didn't want you to, I didn't want you to not have anything, so... And I can use one too. So we often think that our salvation happened at the cross. And then whenever we accepted what Jesus did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we're what? We're now saved. And then we go on about our lives and we're like, hey, you know what? I'm now what? I'm saved. And then we continue on in our lives. And, you know, we're the Christians and we're saved and so forth. And, that's, and that pretty much constitutes our life. I mean, we go on and continue with our plans. And everything is kind of under the guise of what God wants to do. And God is my Lord and my leader. But we pretty much do what we want to do because we have this confidence that we walk now in salvation. But what Scripture tells us is something very interesting. And it's that you are saved at the moment that you turn to Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You're accepting the gift of God. But then scripture also tells us that as we're living in this world, we're experiencing or running the race towards our salvation who's coming one day. You see, the modern church 
we live under the concept that salvation is something that we received back a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. The first century church understood it like this. Salvation is something that's going to come and take me out of this place one day. My Savior is coming. And they walked with that expectation. It's why Paul, I had some stuff written on this. It's why Paul would tell us to run the race, right? Run the race to do what? You, you run it to finish it, right? Well, we might have the concept then that I'm working for my salvation, if that's how you want to look at it, right? Paul's saying, run, run to finish, you know, be strong, run right, through the, run right through the finish line. And you might develop that concept of, well, this has something to do with me working for my faith. It's not, I'll read to you how I have it written here. It's not striving for salvation, but catch this, it's striving in your salvation. All of the New Testament writers are telling us or giving us this concept that once we accept Christ and we're a new creation, that that's whenever the running starts. That's when the life starts. That's when the utter surrender to God happens in our lives. And then we become an instrument not for our own pleasure, but we become an instrument for the hands of God. And that's what all the New Testament writers are telling us. There's never the concept of get saved and just kind of hang out. You're good to go. But it's always salvation begins a transformational process and you run through this life for the goal of your salvation that Christ Jesus is one day returning. And if we're not living for the return of Christ Jesus, we should make sure that we don't fall into the category that Jesus may one day say, but I never knew you. You never ran towards me. You never were longing for me. It was your religious experience of receiving, of receiving a religious grace, a grace that you liked, but there was never truly a desire in your heart for me. I had it written like this. Well, I'll read it a little bit later. He goes on to say this. So we see there in that uh, in verse eight and nine, we see the concept of faith, hope and love. Love was there at the beginning of verse eight. We see believe in him is our faith and the goal of our faith. The the salvation of our souls is the thing that we are hoping for. The ultimate question is always this. What's your ultimate hope? What is in the top of your list right now that that you are desiring to have accomplished in your life? What is it that you are running for that you desire to have happen in your life? Is it bound up in that Christ Jesus is coming back and that you're looking to serve and you're looking for where he is and you're trying to get your life funneled right towards where he is because you don't want to be off the mark just a bit? Or are there other things that's crowding into that whole concept? Is there a whole other kingdom that you're trying to build? And, well, God's part of it over here. And look at what Peter says, verse 10. Now, concerning this salvation that you've been given, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Now, what we have to understand is grace is not a New Testament concept. 
Grace is an Old Testament concept. How so? Well, look at, actually, you want to quote uh, Exodus 34, 6? You don't have to give very many words into it. The Lord, the Lord, the... You just have to get like two words into it. You'll be good. And gracious God. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. He hit it. Good job. Stu, do you want to say it? Okay. Um, that, was our, that was our memory verse a few weeks ago. And so he says this, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently with the greatest care. Now, I said that back from Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassion and gracious God, um, that what you will find in scripture is everything that you can come across in God's word that describes who he is, that's what he's trying to build in you. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, right? He's the radiance of God's glory. If you've seen me, Jesus says, what? You've seen the Father. So everything you see in the Old Testament about God, you will see represented and lived in the life of Jesus, and then you will see that transformation on into the disciples at Pentecost, and you will see that then being birthed out into other people who are accepting the grace of God into their lives. Everything you see about God, he's trying to establish in your life and in my life. It's the great thing about the Father, because check this out. He does not hold anything back from you and me. All that he is, he desires for us to have. Isn't that an amazing concept? All that he is, all that he desires, he desires for that to be our desires. What takes what he pleasures in, he wants us to take pleasure in. And joy, what he desires, he wants us to have those very same desires. And so Peter's telling us this, the prophets of old, they understood that salvation was to come. You can go and read Psalm chapter 2. And then Ezekiel um, 54. That doesn't feel right. Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53. And remember, I touched on this on Sunday morning that the struggle that the Old Testament prophets had was they had prophecies about the Messiah and in some of the prophecies, he's going to rule and reign forever. And in some of the other prophecies, like in Isaiah 53, he's going to be put to death on a cross. And so they had a hard time understanding, how is this salvation ever going to come? Because we have these scriptures here, he's going to live forever. These scriptures over here, he's going to die. We think he's going to live forever, but Zechariah 14.4 tells us he's going to come and touch down on Mount of Olives. Ah, we can't understand this. So actually in Jesus' day, they had developed kind of a dual messianic concept where they thought, well, maybe one one Messiah is going to come and die, and then, then the other one's going to come and rule and reign forever. And what they did not understand was the valley that was between those two prophecies of so far up to about a 2,000-year gap. They saw prophecy stacked on top of prophecy, but when you turn that prophecy sideways, you can see that there's a gap of time. Sunday morning, we talked about that gap of time, and what's it called? The age of, the age of grace, or it's the time of the church. 
It's the church time. And we talked about how precious, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, that God has decided for us to experience the age of the church rather than a thousand years before Jesus. We still don't know why he's done that, right? But concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, simply meaning this. They understood that the Messiah was, that they were never going to see the Messiah, but it was going to be for people down the road. And he says, it was revealed, verse 12, to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look into all of these things. And now what Peter is telling us is this. The time in which you now live, it was a time that men like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, like David, these men were looking for the salvation that was to come. They were always looking forward into what God was going to do, right? You got that concept? How were they always looking? Forward. You don't see the men like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and Elisha saying, oh, you know what? We've, uh, we've got the concept of God's grace, you know, down, so we understand what he's going to do. So, you know, pretty much we're just going to go on about our lives. You don't really see that, do you? You see them, the people who grabbed a hold of the grace that was to come, they were always clinging to what God was going to do in the future, weren't they? That's what they were hanging on to. Their great hope was that when they were on their deathbeds, their great hope was that God was going to send his what one day? His son or a sacrifice or the Messiah who would save them from the bondage of their sin. And they understood that to be grace. But they never experienced They never experienced the salvation that you and I experience while they were living. They had faith. They had hope. They understood the grace of God, but they never got to see the Messiah come. That's why Mary and Joseph, when they brought Jesus into the temple, and the prophet comes walking up, and he's like, Oh, the consolation of Israel. He's here. We have been waiting for thousands of years for the Savior of the world to show up. Can you imagine if you walked around and somebody ran up to you guys and said that? You'd probably say, get away, um, get the mace out, get the stun gun, whatever it may be. You know the amazing thing about all of this is Peter tells us that what you and I are privileged to and what, what these guys are going through is persecution and he's telling them, stand strong with your faith in God. Keep your hope centered on him. He's saying that even angels look into all of this and they're befuddled by it. They don't understand God's God's grace upon humankind. They don't understand God's spirit dwelling in us. They don't understand God's mercy pouring out upon us. 
all of creation is in awe of what God is doing in your life and my life. And so often, what is our response to the great salvation that we've been given? Well, if I can get to church on Sundays and Tuesdays, that's pretty good. Do you see how far of a concept of how many people think today in the church? They think their salvation is all bound up in trying to get to church. And they're missing everything that Peter is talking about here. Let's look over at Ephesians 3 quickly. Because I want you to see how Paul looks at your salvation. At my salvation. I say Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read probably through verse 13 here. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. Now, you have to remember, when he says the word mystery, he's talking about what Peter's referencing about the prophets in the Old Testament. They didn't understand how this salvation was going to happen. It was a what to them? Mystery. Good job. Okay, it was a mystery of what was going to happen. Verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. And the promise in Christ Jesus, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the what? Now, hang on a second. Your attention, please. Paul is talking about all that God has given him, how God has given him the revelation of grace. And Paul has now become an apostle, somebody who's speaking out that message. And he says, now that God's, that that message, the mystery has been made known to me, I have now made it known to other men. The church is established And now, he says, verse 10, God's intent the whole time was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for this glory. Now, just quickly, and let me just read a couple of verses right after that, because this is whenever Paul starts breaking into some worship here. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have what? Power together with all of the saints. How many? All of the saints to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all of the what? The fullness of God. Paul is simply saying this. God has revealed himself to man, to the church. The heavenly realms are just in awe of what God is doing. And then Paul says this. And by the way, a memory verse for all you guys this week would be starting there in verse 14 through verse 19. That's a phenomenal passage of scripture. And he ends verse 19 with that you all would experience the what of God? The fullness of God. Is that where you're at? Would you say I'm experiencing the fullness of God? Would you say, yeah, I'm hungering and thirsting for the fullness of God? Or might it just be, what in the world are you talking about? I got saved years ago. I'm pretty good to go. I'm sure of it. But you see, whenever a guy like Peter, who is just a what? He's just a man. And a guy like Paul, who was just a man. When God's grace came into their lives as a transformational work and all they could think about was the cross. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, when I came to you, I didn't speak anything except about the cross. I didn't try to wow you with with my information and my knowledge and make an Old Testament, New Testament connection, anything like that. He's saying, I just came and talked to you about the cross of Christ. So that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. One of the things that, as I read and I study through here, it's like everybody leading up to the cross, the men who believed in God, who had faith in God, they were always anticipating God to do something great. That's what enabled Abraham to not set roots in this world. And to look for something else. He was expecting God to do something greater than what could ever be accomplished in this world. And then the cross happens. The Messiah comes. And then the people in the first century were literally looking, waiting, and anticipating for Jesus to return. Right? That was the big hope of the first century church. Jesus makes the statement, not all of you will see death before, before you see the Son of Man again. Well, they, they misunderstood what he was saying. And so they were all looking for Jesus to return, and that was their great hope. And then over the course of time, well, Jesus, Jesus hasn't come back yet, has he? And what's happened to our great expectation of the return of our Messiah? It's tanked, hasn't it? Many of us in this room could probably say, I've never even thought about that today or yesterday. Sunday, yeah, we kind of brushed on it. But Saturday, no. I was in gun class, wasn't thinking about Jesus. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? How long do we go between times whenever we're considering the crucifixion, the sacrifice, the issue of our sin, and what God desires to accomplish in it through our lives, and the return of our great and glorious King. Is it ever a blip on the radar? If it's not, 
set your heart in that direction and let God move your heart. Because check this out. Verse 13 from Sunday morning. Therefore, prepare your minds for what? Action. If you're not thinking about such things, what would Peter say? Start thinking about it. If, you're, if you are not concerned with the return of Christ Jesus, that's a really good time to start thinking, does the Spirit of God dwell in me? And I'm not coming into this once saved, always saved, and lose your salvation. But if there's not a desire for the return of Christ in your life, either you're ignorant of the scriptures by which you've now been taught and have been taught for months and months and years, some of you that have been here, either you're ignorant of the scriptures or maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell there. There's not a desire. There's not a desire, right? Does that make sense? And it might just be the truth. But you know what? It might be the truth that's exposed to you that leads you into God's saving grace. Much better, Scripture tells us, make your calling and your election what? Sure. Sure. Make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt what your heart is longing for. Because here's the deal. We all have to answer this question on a daily basis. What is it that your heart has been longing for over the past few days, weeks, months. Because wherever your heart is, it's where you're building treasure, essentially. It's what you're desiring. Is it of this world? Or is it of the kingdom of God? Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. I know that that's what the passage is saying. But the truth of that is, is just moving that around. And it's whatever you desire in this world, that's, that's your treasure, Whatever you desire. And so Peter tells us this. He says, prepare your minds for action. Do you remember that that preparing your mind for action meant to gather your thoughts? So Peter was telling us this. We spent an hour on it on Sunday. We won't spend too much time here. He's saying this. He just told us about this great salvation through the first nine verses uh, of this passage here. And then verses 10, 11, and 12, he's talking about how all of the ancients were looking forward to this great salvation that we would experience one day and that they would experience after Christ goes to the cross, but they never got to experience in their lifetime. Now he's saying, gather together what you understand about your salvation. He says, prepare your mind for what? Action. You got to do something with what you know. It's not okay to just, you know, the, I, I shouldn't say okay, because it's not about working for your salvation, but it's working through your salvation for your Savior who's one day to come to you. If there's a transformational work, there's a transformational work and a desire for the things of God. He says, prepare your minds for action. And then he says, be self-controlled, which means to weigh what you've now gathered together. He's saying, weigh the situation. Take the information that you know about your salvation, weigh it, and what do you come up with in your life? Is it that your heart's desire is for Christ Jesus, the Lord of all, the King of kings? Can you say that you're truly bowed at the feet of Christ Jesus, that it's your desire to be sanctified, to be led by the very Son of God? Gather the information. And weigh it, 
And what do you really get? Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And then he says this, set your hope, what? Fully. On the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now he tells the people who are going through persecution this, set your hope, take your whole life, what you know about him, you're weighing it, you see the value in your salvation rather than the value of life in this world and attainment in this world. You see value in wanting to please God rather than yourself. You see value in being empowered by God rather than empowered by self-will. And he says this, take your whole life and put it in the posture of anticipating the grace that's going to one day come upon your life, the fullness of grace when Christ Jesus comes to get you. And he's saying, that's what you live for. That is the essence of your life. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Very radical in our culture today. Current church culture would tell us this, it's enough to be saved. You don't really have to talk or be obedient or anything. You know, you're saved, so, you know, you don't work for your salvation, so this whole, you know, obeying thing really isn't, you know, all what it's cracked up to be. But do you see what Peter's saying? The sum of your life should be the anticipation of the grace that's going to pour out upon you. And I said this Sunday, but I'm going to probably preach this message uh, once again, hopefully in the, in the future. What Peter's saying is this. You received grace at the cross, right? We all understand that. We receive God's grace, salvation. It is by grace you are saved through faith. But then as we walk through this world, James tells us we're going through trials. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us God disciplines us. He allows us to go through trials. James 1 also tells us that Satan's going to be there, the trickster that he is, and he's going to try and tempt us not to obey God. But as we go through those times of life, we're going through the trials and we come to a place where we're powerless. Karen, are you powerless with what you've been going through and continue to go through? You got any power to change your situation? No, absolutely powerless. Willie, were you powerless whenever you dealt with the same type of, same type of situation, the sickness, cancer? Yeah, you don't have any power in the situation. What do, you, what do we rely upon? God's grace. It's his grace. Remember, if you substitute with the word grace for God's enabling power. And what we understand is we receive grace at the cross, but as we walk through this world and we go into trials that we can't handle and we turn and we say, God, I'm powerless. You are all powerful. Do you know what starts to pour out upon our lives? He starts to pour out his grace. You see, so often we rely on just that grace we got at salvation. And we're like, hey, I, I got saved. I got my card right here. I got baptized. My mom has a picture of me. And I even have a signed thing from the pastor that says I, I, got, I got baptized and saved on this day. And we, we settle for that grace there. But then what scripture is telling us is we actually have the opportunity to receive much more of God's grace as we walk through this world to rely upon him. He opens up the floodgates and he starts pouring out his grace upon our lives. Some of you guys understand what that is. And because of that, you can worship God in a much more intimate and a much more passionate way. 
But this is what Peter's saying. You understand grace at the cross. You understand grace through trials. Now he says this. When Jesus comes back, the fullness of God's grace, Niagara Falls, is going to open up upon you. We have no concept. I don't think we have anything in this world to compare that to. I think it's going to be so overwhelming because I told you, I believe for a moment we might have the reality given to us of our sin, wickedness, and rebellion, knowing the fullness of good and evil. And I think for a moment we'll see who we really are, and then here comes Niagara Falls, and it's going to pour on top of us, and I think that that is going to cast every believer down on their face before God, prostrate, prostrate, prostrate before, not prostrate, prost, yeah, prostrate. Um, we can cut that out. Uh, that was 855. Prostate, prostrate before the king. Okay, we're never doing that one again because that one has now been locked in there. Prostrate. We will fall flat on our faces before the Lord. And we will be people that I honestly believe, I believe each and every one of us, I believe that we'll be sitting there and I believe we'll be overwhelmed with God's grace upon our lives. And we'll say we're not worthy. And then as John was seen in heaven, there was nobody there who could open up the scroll. And then they looked over and they saw the lamb as if it had been slain. And they said, what? Worthy is the lamb. He can do it. The song we just sang. And guys, I believe that when we're flooded with the fullness of God's grace, there's not anything that we're ever even going to be tempted with other than simply glorifying and praising God throughout eternity. Does that make sense? God in his compassion on us does not give us a mind to remember all of our sin. Can you, mem- can you realize or can you think about what would be going on right now in your life if you could remember every sin you ever committed and it was constantly in the forefront of your mind? I don't think we could handle it. You think we can handle it? I think we'd probably end our lives. I don't think we could handle it. But God's mercy, his grace is coming and that's what Peter's saying. Put your hope fully on the grace to be given you. You see, it's not just the grace at the cross. It's not just the grace that you receive going through this life, God's enabling power to walk, to be an overcomer of the things of this world, but it is God's grace that is going to be given to us when Christ Jesus is revealed. And so he says this as obedient children, verse 14, do not conform to the evil desires you, what? You had when you lived in ignorance. Now, now, Paul really, or Peter here, he really likes that word obedience because over um, verse 2, he uses the word obedience. Down in verse 22, he's going to say, obey the truth. And the concept of obedience is this. It is obeying the counsel. Obeying the counsel that's given. Obeying the word that is given to you. And you're obeying the word or instruction that is being given to you. 
Now, that's why back over in 1 John, we see uh, chapter 5, verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his what? His commands. Sorry, I didn't give you guys time to get there. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Guys, catch this for a second. Just listen to it if you're not there. This is how we know that we love the children of God. This is how you know that you love the other brothers and sisters that are in this room. And John says, this is how you know that you love the other people around you. And it's by what? Obedience to God's word. Meaning this. If you take the posture of not wanting to be obedient because, or, or obedient because you think that it's optional, some kind of a secondary level, and ah, yeah, I'll get to the monk thing later on in my life, you have fooled yourself. And as a matter of fact, you'll find that where there is a life that is in disobedience to God, there will also be a difficulty in relationships. Because where there's a disobedient spirit, it's going to cause difficulty and it's going to cause barriers with other believers. And so he's telling us this. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had. He's saying this. When you go through the difficulties, okay, your attention please, when you go through the trials or even when Satan is tempting you, you realize what, you're, what often we are tempted to do? We want to give up, and we want to go sit on the sofa, want to have a pity party, I'll turn on the TV, turn on a movie, rather than going to God, and we'll go into the doldrums of depression, and we'll go and we'll start doing things that we did before we knew Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I knew a person once, that through the course of time, later in life, it was the early 30s, uh, had smoked for a long time, gave up smoking, um, surrendered at the altar one day um, during an altar call, just put the cigarettes up there, walked away from it for like 15, 16, 17, 18 years. After 15, 16, 17, 18 years, the, the relationship that the person was in started having difficulties, the marriage relationship. And started having difficulties. There was a lot of discord. There was going to be some separation. It did end up in divorce. But it was interesting that the individual, that as that difficulty came into their lives, what do you guess that they picked right back up again to soothe them? Yeah, they went right back to it. And what Peter is telling us here, that's just an example, and we all understand that, don't we? That we often have the tendency, uh, you know, as a... Uh, um, well, as a dog returns to its vomit, so we often do to our own sin. And he says here, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, ignorance means what? Not knowing. Stupid is knowing and not doing. That's stupid. Ignorance is, I didn't know. And there was a time before Christ that we didn't know. We didn't have the understanding of our sin. We didn't know that the things that we were doing was going to be so destructive to ourselves and to other people. We didn't have that understanding. But then the light of the gospel, the light of the grace shines into our hearts. And oh, 
revelation comes and we understand, oh, I understand what that's doing to me, my relationship with God, and what it's doing to everybody else around me. And what he's saying is this. When you struggle, when the difficulty's there, don't go back to what you used to be. Move forward. Don't stop treading water. Keep and you move forward. And he says this in verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Holy means what? What else? Saint, set apart, sanctify, all of that, right? So be what? Holy in all you do. It should probably be a verse that's marked in your Bible. Here's the question. Is that a life verse for you? Can you say that right now, as you look at your life, and the answer would probably be that we would all have something, but what Peter's telling us is this, be holy in what? In the Greek, all means what? All. Now, can you say that in every aspect of your life, it's conforming to Christ-likeness? Can you say that everything you do, everywhere you go, that you're trying to bring it under the obedience of Christ Jesus? Can you say that your life, that you desire a holy life? Here's the deal. Back when Peter said in verse 13, therefore prepare your minds. I want to bring this back because I think that this is a a crucial and it gives us great understanding concept of our lives. He says, prepare your what? Did he say hearts? No. Why, why did he not say hearts? Because we can't change our hearts. We can't change our hearts, but we can change our what? Our minds. God can change our hearts, but he will not change our minds. Meaning this, when we change our minds and we say, I desire for my life to be holy unto the Lord, what will God do with our hearts? He will put it right in line with that. But we often ask, and we often ask God to work in our hearts. We often ask God to work in our hearts when we first haven't made up our minds to let him do what needs to be done. Totally revolutionary for me. I mean, I, doesn't that explain so much? When we, when we see people or ourselves, when we've tried to get out of the rut of sin and we're asking God, oh God, change my heart, I, you know, whatever it may be, the issue is we haven't committed our minds. The great problem I had written here with discipleship, you know the great difficulty, the hardest thing about discipleship? Because I think most people that go to church they truly desire to have that Christ-led, spirit-empowered life. True? Do you guys? I, I honestly believe that most people, if you know, if they could go and pay one twenty-nine ninety-five for it online and get it, I think most Christians would probably fork out the hundred and thirty bucks. But what I found is this: going through the Bonhoeffer book, the hardest thing about discipleship is what we must surrender. And discipleship is only possible. God's not going to change our hearts about discipleship until our minds are set in that direction. 
And what happens is, and I was talking, Stu and I were talking about this this week, what that means, because I challenged all the men last week to read an hour a day. An hour a day. And it was a hard thing, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a really hard thing, because you know what it takes to read an hour a day? It means you're probably going to have to shut off the television at 8 o'clock at night or 8.30 or the computer or whatever else you're working on. And you're going to have to stop and put it away and say, you know what, I'm making up my mind. You see, you see the concept? When you make up your mind to plant the word of God in your heart, do you know what God will do? He'll till the soil and he'll make it fertile. And you know what will start happening? You won't have a problem learning the word of God because it's what you want. We never have a problem attaining or obtaining what it is we truly desire, do we? We never have that problem. Wherever your mind goes, your heart's going to follow. God can do that effective work. Be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Simple point is simply this. If it's your heart's desire to be holy to the Lord because he's your God, God will move your heart and he'll do the work that's necessary. Half-heartedness won't ever get you there. Or the concept of, well, I'm going to try and wean myself. Man, it's where you want to go. And what God is saying is, he'll take you to some amazing places if that's your desire. If you just want to hang out here till you die, hey, you may still get in, you may still escape, but by the flames, you still might make it to heaven, but you're going to miss the experience of the Spirit of God dwelling in you here. It's what the Old Testament people were longing for. Oh, we wish, and I've often said in the past, I think those guys like Elijah, Elisha, Abraham, Moses, I think they're going to come up to us and be like, man, what was it like with God dwelling in you? Come on now, Brad, tell me about it. And I think they're going to be so excited to see the church get there. You ever think about it? A guy like Moses and Abraham, they're going to be excited to meet us. They're going to be like, wow. God did something special in your life because he put you in the church age, the age of grace. He did great things with people outside of that age, didn't he? But man, Jesus says, you've seen things that I've done and you will do what? Greater things than even you've seen me do. Isn't that amazing? What a promise. What did I say on, uh, on Sunday? I think you'd, Alicia had told you that your, your attitude, your outlook determines your outcome. Man, that's good stuff. I think I took that from somebody. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, verse 17, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now catch this. He's just simply saying this. When you consider who God is, when you consider that God is looking at your life and he's looking at your life separately from everybody else's life, Peter's telling us this. Don't go back to the old sinful ways that you used to have. Consider the sin that your old ways of life will produce 
and consider that God's watching what's going on. You have the whole heavenly body that's rooting you on that you would choose grace of God to empower you rather than to rely upon your flesh. And he's saying, just consider it for a second that God is now working in your life. How foolish it would be to go back and party it up with the world. And he says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in his last days for what? For your sake. The lamb came for you, for me. And of course, we already did an in-depth study on Sunday, two Sundays ago, on verse 18. Helping us to remember that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Do you ever think about that most often what you long for in your life when you really boil it all down comes to the desire of some kind of wealth or possession for most people? I work so that I can have would be the concept that most people have. And he's telling us this. There's no value in it. You think that there's value in it, but the only thing of true value is the lamb that was slain for you. That's the only thing in this world that has value. And Peter's telling us this. Don't get caught up. Don't get tripped up in staring at the things of this world so closely and that you're missing the glorious appearing of your great God and Savior, your Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, he's revealed in these last times for your sake. He was chosen, verse 20, before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. You know what he's saying here in verse 20? It was always the plan that Jesus would die for you. Before creation, the plan was already there. He was chosen before the creation of the world to save you from your sin. What's your response to that? What's your response to when you see the reality of your sin, you know, gather together your thoughts about this. What is your natural inclination? What is your spiritual inclination towards that concept of Jesus being at the cross? Let me see if I have some notes here. He says this, verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in what? God. Now catch this concept. I'll just talk about it for just a few moments here and then we'll, we'll move on and finish this up quickly. Peter's reminding us this, that sometimes we get so fixated on the cross and our salvation that we actually lose sight of God. Remember, Jesus, the cross, and salvation is all the will of God to be done, right? This is the plan of the Father. The cross is the enacted plan of the Father. And so often, we may have this concept, we've already touched base on it, 
that we look at the cross and we're like, oh, thank you for saving me. I'm so happy. I'm saved. I'm born again. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Kind of, kind of a deal. I'll go and try and be the best that I can, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And we go on about our lives very thankful for the cross, and we should be, right? Very thankful for the sacrifice. Excited about the resurrection because it means that God now takes us from death to life. And we understand now the eternal riches, the inheritance that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 that we will now receive. And all of this, this, this spiritual, but sometimes in all of that, we keep looking back at the cross and we stop looking at the God who gave us the cross. And the danger sometimes is this because God's there. The Son is there. God the Father's there. God the Son is there. God the Spirit's here, dwelling in us and around us. And so often, we get so happy and fixated on the work that was done on the cross, we stop anticipating the return of our Savior or the ultimate goal of our Heavenly Father. Now, the day that you accepted the Lord, what did you understand at that moment in your life was God's greatest accomplishment in your life. What was it? It was to save you, wasn't it? The day you accepted the Lord, you understood that was God's greatest accomplishment. Oh, he wants to save me. The pastor's up there. He wants to save you. Come on, receive the grace of God. You stood up, you prayed, whatever it was, and you accepted the Lord because you knew, above all else, Jesus died for your sins and that God desires to save you because he loves you, right? And you responded with a, yeah, I'll take it. Give it to me. But at that moment, you had a very narrow concept of what God was trying to do, didn't you? Then you started going to Bible study. You started learning the word of God. And then you understood that God's concept was much bigger than just to save you, wasn't it? It was a transforming work. It is a continual work. It is a sanctification process that goes through your life because God desires not just for you to be saved, but he desires for all men to come to repentance. And then the concept just got bigger. I hope and pray, and we've been hitting it a lot, and I think God's been speaking about it, that that becomes the desire of our hearts. Philippians 2 tells us that it is he who works in you to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect. Let me read it to you. I know, but I got to look it up anyways. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. It's the problem with multiple translations. When you, you, when you learn it one, one time in the new King James or King James and then run it over into another translation, that's my best excuse I have. For it is God who wills in you to act according to his good purpose. I hope and pray that that is what God does in the lives. I believe that we have great people here at ODF. I believe we have a lot of people that love the Lord. I believe we have a lot of people that give their lives, that have actually made the the conscious decision to give their lives to the Lord. And through that, I hope God transforms our hearts. 
are those hearts. And makes those into hearts that isn't just desiring to do good things for the kingdom of God, but that desire to have the same heart as God the Father and that our hearts would feel and would hurt the same for those who are lost. That's the work that needs to be done in our lives. When we have compassion and when we hurt for people who are lost, that's how we know that we're moving in the right direction. He goes on to say this. He says, now that you have, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves <laughs> by what? Obeying the truth. It's, it's an amazing concept. If you're not somebody who obeys the word of God, you're not purifying yourself. Jesus would say it like this in John 17, 17. He would, Father, he would say, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is what? Truth. Father, wash them, cleanse them, mold them, make them by your word. Father, would your word have that great transformational work in their lives to purify them, to set them apart, to do that great and needed work? And Jesus says, it's only done by the power of the word of God. Now, this is a disconcerting thing. There are some people who just, who attend church, who just don't really enjoy the word of God. What's, where's that going to place them spiritually? They're going to be struggling big time, aren't they? It's going to explain a lot about what's going on in their lives. I've talked to so many people who said, I just really don't like to read the word of God. Well, I know the spirit of God likes the word of God. Because he's the spirit of truth. If that spirit's dwelling in you, either you're just filling your life up too much, or maybe the spirit's not even there. Once again, if you don't have the desire for God, hey, just be real with it, right? If you don't have the desire to be in the word of God, if you don't have a desire to plant the word of God in your heart, it's nobody's condemning. It's just, hey, just be real and accept the truth for what it is. You don't really, you know, you don't really enjoy, you don't really want to be in the word of God. You have no desire to really hear and apply. You just kind of like to hear and it's very interesting. But just be honest. And guys, I think that that's a great message for the church today. Just be honest with the truth. You know, Angela got rebaptized and um, rebaptized, or she was baptized when she was. 27, 28, somewhere around in there. Because she just didn't, when she was baptized as a child, she just didn't really understand what she was committing to. So she said, you know what? That's the picture of my old life going in the grave, coming out a new creation. I, I want to start my life in that direction because I didn't know what I was doing as a kid. But you know what? So many people are afraid to just be open and honest and say, you know, I said a lot of things as a kid, but I just, there's never been the desire or the passion. It's one of the most difficult things for people who grow up in church. There'd be such, so, such embarrassment, they would think. Well, I already thought you were saved. We actually had somebody the other day or a few months ago that had come forward at another church and said that they wanted to be baptized because they just wasn't quite sure about what they were doing when they got baptized. And the pastor told them, oh, no, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm not going to baptize you. I'm like, I'll do it. I'll throw them down in the lake. Let me finish this for you guys. Look at what verse 22 is and how Peter is looking at his hearers. Now that you have, right? 
have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field, but the grass withers and the flowers what? Fall or fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It means this. The only thing worth living for is your eternal Savior. The seed that you have been given of eternal life. It's the only thing because everything else in here, Solomon would say it's what? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything except for God is meaningless. And this is the word that has been preached to you. Consider what Peter is saying here. Consider what the Spirit is directing you towards in your life. Consider so many great passages here in all of this, but starting with your salvation, gathering your thoughts, pulling it together. What do you think of the Lord? And is that having an impact on your life? Is there a transformation or is there a desire to be obedient? Is there a longing to know God's word and to have it transform your life into the life that Jesus was saying is an abundant life? Don't put your hope in relying upon the things in this world and attaining something that is here. Live here as aliens and strangers, but don't get stuck on living life here because I most certainly would not want you to miss the glory of God. I most certainly, and myself included, we should not be shocked when Jesus comes because we should be what? Looking for him, anticipating for him to return. And the person who anticipates the master's return is always the one who is busy about the master's what? His business. Let's stand.